Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Nate Fisher, who is a investor and entrepreneur and the CEO of New Founding, a venture firm for the American right. In this conversation, we talk about his political leanings and how he sees the right having victories within the American landscape through business, through investment, and through alternative forms of entrepreneurship. Very interesting conversations out of my wheelhouse, because I'm not really a business-minded man, but I found Nate Fisher very fascinating and succinct and learned a lot in this conversation. So if you want to follow him or invest with him, links to his work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Nate Fisher. Where are you? About? I'm in Dallas. Oh, okay. Is that where uh, is that where you're from, or is that just where nope. you were taken? I uh, I'm from upstate New York originally. I have uh, been here about five years. I see Dallas as, in many ways, a natural capital of Red America. So, mm. to the extent that there is an alternative aligned economy set of institutions on the right, I think Dallas is a good place for them. And I. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly been a uh, a space that you've seen a gravitation of people and yeah. and to some extent companies uh, with this set of values. Why do you think Dallas was it um, the business culture that kind of set it up that way or something else? I think it's a combination. I think it's scale. I think it's in a big, important red state. It's it is a very business oriented culture, which is lacking in a lot of uh, a lot of cities. Uh, and then it's it's also in some sense you could think of it as sort of cosmopolitan from within America culturally. Like you could move from almost anywhere in the country in the U.S. and feel at home uh, fairly easily in Dallas. Mm-hmm. What do you mean it's oriented towards business as opposed to some place else? Like what is it's that the mean? kind of place where business gets done. So people people are down to do business. It's it's one of the probably few cities in the country where you can sit down for a lunch and a multi-million dollar deal gets done after like someone will write a check for an opportunity there. They're there to do business in a way. I was in Tampa. I started my career in Tampa and Tampa is very much not a city like that. It's much more, uh, it's much sort of sleepier culture. There's, there's operations, there's businesses being built, but it's not really, uh, it's not a city where deals are, deals are, it's not a culture of deal making there. Mm. And I think there's a few cities, New York, LA, Silicon Valley, all of those have a real culture of deal making. Uh, none of them are red cities in the least. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get into business? What attracted you to that field? I, I, I I've always been drawn to business since I was a kid. I saw business as. I, I saw business as, in some sense, sort of one outlet for broader questions about how to how to uh, have leverage in the world. And uh, I guess going to hmm. how I specifically made that original turn into business, I was in college. I was studying political science. I was contempl- I was very interested in politics. I remember spending a summer in D.C., and I became convinced, and I think it may almost have been an intentional part of the program. I became convinced that uh, DC was the sort of place that people like careerists like Mitt Romney would climb their way to the top. It was a place that rewarded a certain game that you would play, and that any sort of uh, any sort of non-consensus viewpoint would likely get you shunted to the side and uh, marginalized career-wise. So. I remember this was summer after my sophomore year. I remember immediately making a decision that uh, I have no interest in politics. I have no interest in a career where you have to be a conformist. Uh, whereas investing, if you make a non-consensus but correct move, you can make a lot of money. 
you're going to be rewarded. And okay. so I, I was drawn to investing at that point. I sort of made an immediate decision. I would go into investing. Uh, I went to law school as an avenue to get there. Uh, but then I ended up going straight into business after that, doing uh, buying distressed apartment buildings in Florida and Texas in 2011. And it was really significant out of favor asset class. But uh, we saw macro trends. We saw people moving to these red states. And I uh, believe that it was a it was a very attractive play and certainly proved to be right and bought a lot of uh, bought a lot of apartments and grew that very quickly and ended up being very, very successful in that. And it's interesting during the Trump era, I got sort of more into politics in a sense. My original thesis was no longer true. Now Trump, who's an outside the box, non-consensus guy was disrupting the space and the Mitt Romney's were the ones being shunted to the side. And so mm. it became clear that my original thesis about politics was no longer true. And I, I returned to a lot more focus on politics, but I still, I still see a lot of the best opportunities to, achieve anything in that space as happening through business rather than through sort of conventional formal politics. Okay. So um, you're kind of putting a lot out there. So Charles Haywood went to law school and he tried to practice law or he practiced law for a while and then he ended up going to business. You said law school was, you, you were doing it not for law, but for business. How does, how does that flow into it? So it was a, so I went to a I went to a college called Calvin College, which was a sort of mediocre Christian-ish liberal hmm. arts college in Grand Rapids, and uh, not a school a school I've subsequently publicly denounced their uh, their trajectory on. I, uh, but it, not a school that was going to get me into Wall Street or get me into any sort of high level of uh, of business. And I got into Harvard Law School, and so it was sort of in a sense, in a very simple sort of basic way, just having an elite credential gives you the okay. ability to get into a lot of, uh, a lot of circles. Uh, and that was, I think that was a big part of the basic calculus. And then, uh, the plan was going into bankruptcy law. I was, my thought was practice bankruptcy law for a few years and through that go into distressed investing, distressed investing, obviously is a sort of often and almost inherently non-consensus. I guess not inherently non-consensus, but it's certainly a, a place where if you make the right non-consensus bet, there's a lot of opportunity. So mm -hmm. distressed investing was, distressed investing seemed like a natural vehicle for what I saw as the, what I gravitated toward and what I saw as the opportunity. So the plan was to go to a law firm, do that for a few years, learn learn bankruptcy law, go over to a distressed hedge fund or something like that, and then work my way up there. Uh, what I ended up doing was I ended up partnering with a classmate, uh, not going to back to a law firm, ended up turning down the law firm that I had an offer at, and uh, going straight into distressed investing in a much less institutional way. So it was much more of a scrappy build-your-own-firm than get a job at an elite mm -hmm. firm and kind of keep playing that game, we... which, which is actually in some ways a more non-consensus move, sort of. Uh, it, it was actually a more fitting move for me. And I think it's a, a much better fit for me temperamentally to have pursued that career than to have gone, uh, gone to a wall street firm in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Could you define, uh, distressed investing? What, what do you mean by distressed? So it's a broad, it, it can be a very broad category. And for me, it was anything where there is, uh, well, so coming out of bankruptcy law, it would be anything where, uh, anything where the company is in financial distress. So it doesn't necessarily need to be operational distress, but it can be financial distress, which means that it's uh, capital structure is unstable. It's over levered. Uh, it's not able to operate in ordinary course of business. And there needs to be some sort of restructuring. So whether that's a uh, bankruptcy and a transition of ownership from the shareholders to the bondholders, uh, or there's sort of a, a set of different, in some cases there's, different tranches of debt and there's a lot of jockeying for who's going to end up with control of something or control of the process uh, so that would be one and then what we ended up doing with real estate was a lot of buying re buying reo asset apartment buildings which is assets that are already owned by the bank so the bank has already taken the the apartment building back it's sitting on their balance sheet it's it, it's it's sold as a clean sale so it doesn't it doesn't it's not really complicated from a perspective of uh of uh, 
the, the financial structure of the transaction. But I think it broadly it broadly falls in the same category because in that case, it's actually operationally distressed. Uh, typically, the asset is not it's not being run by a professional manager who's uh, whose business model is running running businesses like that. And so there's again, there's a lot of there's a lot of ability to buy something opportunistically, buy it at an attractive price if you if you know how to uh, evaluate something that there's not a lot of buyers for. Uh, but it, so uh, you can think of it as a pretty broad category in many yeah, ways. Yeah. But the narrow version would be stuff where where bankruptcy law or financial restructuring is gonna gonna play a role. The broad one would be sort of any situation that's any situation where there's there's financial or operational distress outside okay. of the ordinary course of business. So you come in um, and you guys would take ownership or responsibility for a, an asset and then flip it in some way or add. Um, reorganize it in in some way so that it returns to being valuable yeah so there wasn't there, there wasn't a lot of uh financial reorganization uh, what we would we did some where we would buy the note we would run through a bankruptcy process or foreclosure process we would take control of the uh take control of the property but for most we're buying the property from the bank we're raising money so we'll raise money from outside investors with that equity, we then go to the bank, we bid on the asset, buy the asset, buy the apartment building. We built our own property management company. We we had employees who did maintenance, who did the property management, all of that. Uh, generally, there's a, a level of, of capital investment in the property, so we'll do some renovation. Often a, a financially distressed property has just had a lot of deferred maintenance, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's gonna be a pretty clear value add in terms of increased rents. Uh, and yet uh, it's been deferred because the owner hasn't been able to afford it. And in some cases, there was real sort of vacancy in the market uh, for a little while. But there's also the situation where even if the market is sort of healthy, if the owner is just if the owner has too big of a mortgage and too high of their their cash flow needs to go to the mortgage, there's a lot of things that would be pretty obvious, easy return investments, renovating a really old kitchen, for instance, that they just they don't have the cash to do. And so everything has to go to debt service. And so there's a lot of easy stuff to do that you can do to improve the property uh and then and then uh capture the upside as the profits increase as, as you're able to increase uh occupancy and we ended up holding most of the assets for we sold the bulk of uh our early buys so we bought between 2011 and 2014 we sold a lot of those in uh 2019 uh i think late 2018 through early 2020 and so uh, we ended up holding for about uh, seven or eight years, which is uh, l which is sort of normal for a private equity. We weren't we weren't okay. buying to flip. We were buying to we were buying to buy properties that we expected to become a lot more valuable. And in some ways, as the as the cycle continued to boom, as the Fed continued to print money, uh, that ended up by uh, mm. our, our 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 thesis bore out maybe more than we could have anticipated as as the fed printed money and prices increased so, uh, that that's kind of complex then you're benefiting from something that you might have a moral qualm about about the fed printing money what's your stance on that I, absolutely i think it was i, I mean it, it's it's certainly something that i i think is questionable to undesirable for the country so i recognize that no, I think it's good. It's good for distressed investors who who are correct about making a, a non consensus move to come in and make a lot of money. That's that's a good system and encourages behaviors that are uh, are virtuous for the system. Uh, I don't think that there's any great virtue in people who just happen to own levered assets uh, seeing the prices of those assets double because the Fed's printing money. And so uh, that I see as a uh, suboptimal one. And in a sense, we sort of, we predicted one side of that. We benefited from both sides of that. So mm -hmm. for me, it's part of the reason I didn't, it's part of the reason I never felt sort of called to remain in private equity per se, real estate, private equity is a career. I didn't want to make a, a career of real estate where really most of your money comes in many ways. I, uh, Certainly, as we were doing it from gathering assets and sort of hoping that hoping the Fed continues to print money, I uh, I would much rather I would much rather be betting on betting on things whereby accelerating them I'm I'm doing things that I think are unquestionably good for the country. Mm -hmm. And so politics is about loosely speaking, politics and business share uh, 
a core aspect of ordering society. It, it, it's really principled on order or ordering. Um, so I, I see the, the crossover there. Where do you see the crossover? Because you said that you, you were contemplating getting into politics, but then you saw what it was all about. And so you went to business and then you returned to politics. So there's a crossover for you. And what's the values that, that are shared between uh, your politics and then your business acumen or stance? So I would say it's particularly obvious in venture. So in venture, if you think about what venture is, you're venture in startups. You're conceiving of something that doesn't exist, and you're, in a sense, willing it into existence. So a new startup is, uh, and particularly in the, in the current generation of startups, where there's a lot of network technologies, a lot of social technologies, uh, there's a lot of uh, values-laden technologies. Uh, I think all technologies sort of have some value component, but there's ones that are particularly values-laden. So uh, example I'll give is sort of in the 2010s, you really saw a shift to the messaging around startups became obviously political. Uh, you think mm -hmm. of back in, uh, you think of Facebook's previous mission, which was to make the world a more open and connected place. Like that's not, we're just going to make a bunch of widgets and we're going to make them cost effectively. That's that's a real vision of how they see the world being ordered and it has baked in certain values. It's values of global, of like broad connection across the globe is a good thing. It's a global, pro-globalist mission. Uh, you even can contrast that with, say, Microsoft's mission, which was, uh, or its vision was, I think, a, a computer on every desk, uh, which was, mm -hmm. it, it, it's certainly going to change the world in important ways, but they're but they're not focusing on, the mission of reorganizing society they're focused on we're putting this this gadget on people's desks that, that empowers them to use it in different ways whereas facebook explicitly is trying to make the world a more connected place and uh and more open and open goes with that and if i have openness you could argue sort of even more deeply political to believe that openness is good and so you saw that huh. in facebook you saw that and you saw that in a lot of the messaging around uber you saw that in a lot of the messaging we work i think is a very obvious example where we work's messaging was really deeply political and you saw i think with that a pervasive left-wing uh aspect to a lot of this messaging i mean it would they would sort of seamlessly they would seamlessly mix the direct impact of their product with these sort of broader uh, left left aligned visions around around globalization, around multiculturalism, around uh, around sort of openness in many many other areas, and so uh, it it certainly reflected a particular vision. And I think when you're building something new, especially with 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 vast ambitions to change uh, change the world. You are uh, you're you're sort of inherently coming up with a vision of how the world is going to be organized, and yeah. the, and the right really is not present in that world, and that's a I think there's that that's a problem for two things. One is we're just in some sense as conservatives we haven't really been engaged in those questions of where we should go. Conservatives like to focus on what we want to preserve rather than what we should be creating. So I think it's a temperamental thing, and then I think another one is. Uh, so that that's a problem. It just leaves them absent. And so in some sense, like entrepreneurial people by nature are looking for something to aspire to. And if the only people providing that are progressives are the left, they're probably more likely to sort of default to a leftist vision because they just want to go out and sort of conquer and create something great in some cases. Mm -hmm. Some of them are deeply ideological. Guys like Mark Benioff is deeply ideological. Many of them less so. Uh, but I think the other problem is as a movement, we are at a disadvantage in many ways. We our, our enemies control almost every institution in society. Uh, they have a lot of power. And if you think about a situation like that, then our greatest friend should be disruptive technology. Disruptive technology, more than anything else, should offer us the potential to uh, meaningfully alter that status quo, in some sense, reshuffle the deck in a way that at least gives us a chance of of significant gains relative to the status quo. Uh, if we're at a significant disadvantage and you're talking sort of ordinary competitive means, you just don't you don't see a major reordering. It's it's going to be fighting an uphill battle in many, many domains, which is why I think venture is particularly going to my point. Venture is particularly conducive to the right. Uh, it is it is kind of like the space where you can see something emerging and rapidly growing to the point that it actually shifts the balance of power meaningly, meaningfully. 
Well, what, what I does guess, that look like? The the shift towards the right, or like on a well. So I'll shift. throw out one example. As let's say you had a let's say you had a right aligned Google, and I think leave open the question of whether it would just look like a parallel to Google, and it might not. But at the very least, uh, it, for the simplest thought experiment, let's say you had a right right aligned Google where. Uh, think of Google as Google is an inherently values laden product by the very nature of the product. You go to the website, you type something and it and it gives you a ranked list of results. And that that ranked list of results is ranked by some standard of the good. There's a number one result. There's number two result. Number 10. There must be a standard by which it says one is better than two. Two is better than 10, whatever. Uh yeah. That standard, presume that that standard is is inherently political, uh, or it's inherently values laden, which and in many cases can be inherently political. Let's say you had a Google that, in some ways, you could think the people who set the Google algorithm are probably more that that might be a more powerful and impactful policy than uh, what most congressmen could ever hope to actually implement. So hmm. deeply powerful, uh, in a sense, sort of powerful governance of the digital layer of our life and as more and more of our life becomes mediated by algorithms those who control the digital layer those who control the networks that are that are are mediating our uh not just our digital lives but increasingly those that digital layer is mediating decisions we make even offline it's, it helps decide where i go to eat dinner for instance uh mm -hmm. the, the algorithms there so it's actually mediating more and more aspects of life say you had a google that was right aligned uh you change the algorithm and it it elevates good content objectively good or true content it it, it elevates content that's conducive toward uh, a common good for society as we understand it that could radically reshape how people make decisions across many domains of life uh yeah. it, it certainly it could even it could even change what they believe to be true in important cases you think of google sort of google news determining what 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 the authoritative source is on some some topic yeah. uh that's tremendously influential and it could it could lead to reshaping many other domains uh of society as well so you think of in some ways you could think of something like google as the pinnacle of a status hierarchy it, it sets scores that lots of other companies have to conform to if you're trying to build a business uh mm -hmm. just as an example if you're trying to let's say uh if you're trying to uh get your content watched by people how it is treated by the Google algorithm or the YouTube algorithm is going to uh, is going to deeply shape your success, and you're going to be incentivized to essentially conform to the incentives that Google creates. If we control those incentives, then many many other institutions are going to actually shape their communications and their content to uh, what we elevate and reward. Uh, just like right now, even many conservative institutions essentially conform their content to what Google elevates, which is often yeah. Yeah. perhaps contrary to their mission. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a Happy price. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I can see another example being TikTok, where you see it, it's a Chinese-owned company, and in China, a similar app would be adulating certain behaviors, uh, you know, probably around yep. uh, st stabilizing family structures, uh, obedience to the political parties. Whereas in America, you see that it incentivizes um a lot of deleterious narcissistic behaviors right so it's it's kind of pushing people in one way in one zone and another way in another zone so a right-leaning TikTok would boost the trad wives and and downrank the uh, gender pronoun people right 
Exactly. It would it would boost what we consider good. Certainly, it would boost what we consider good as conservatives, as right wingers, and it would uh, it would devalue what we consider bad. It would it would deprecate or suppress what we consider bad. And I think TikTok is in some sense the best because it's almost it's one of the most sort of pure play along with Google algorithmic uh, algorithmic apps. So you it's impossible to have a values neutral form of TikTok. TikTok is trying to achieve something, even one that's uh, what you often see Silicon Valley do is they don't like to think of their work as political or they, they they're not comfortable in that domain as much as at the high level. Sometimes they they have embraced political values. So they'll focus on sort of engineering type metrics like engagement. Well, even engagement is is going to have a particular you're you're optimizing for essentially a digital heroin, something that's going to keep you addicted. So that itself is obviously going to have a profound impact on on society and do you push the good or do you push the engaging or the addictive? And those are very different directional questions for, mm-hmm. for where people spend significant time. Yeah. But isn't, isn't that kind of like the, the marketplace of ideas would, uh, or the marketplace would probably reward for people who are tuning things for engagement over the good, right? So you're already at a disadvantage if you're trying to do both, or you're going to have to be some sort of hypocrite to do like the good heroin, Right, maybe, I'm not sure that's true. Okay. So I'm I'm not sure that needs needs to be true. First off, I think humans are humans are made to they have different instincts. Sometimes they like the sort of base engaging, but but people want more too. They want they want ideas that matter. They want truth. Uh, they they it's it's in our nature, and I think to some extent, especially if it's a people capable of of any sort of self rule, I. Uh, there needs to be a an instinct like a, a, a people who are always going to choose the engaging over the good are I think Aristotle would classify them as sheep. natural slaves. Yeah, they're yeah. natural slaves. They are okay. going to be enslaved by someone. And uh, I think part of the American system of government is predicated on the assumption that uh, at least some subset of people want more than that. So I think first off, there has to be the market will reward different things. Second off, and this is the big one, I think that is is often missed is. It can be hard. A, a low value engagement driven network is also going to not really is not going to be conducive to facilitating trust, high trust interactions. So so the the marketplace might reward it by getting eyeballs for a long time and eyeballs can be converted with advertisement into sort of consumer based consumer transactions. But it's not going to facilitate much more. Whereas you imagine a network that's higher value and is more trusted, it's it might not be as engaging. I might not get quite as many eyeballs for as long, but that platform itself might be able to sell higher value services. Like you might trust that platform if, if you see an ad on that platform or it's somehow otherwise monetizing through through some uh, some sort of matchmaking. You may trust that platform for something you would never trust. A low value platform for and those transactions may be much higher value transactions so i'm interested in things like hiring and talent placement or or where you could get high value professional services lawyers like you're not likely to hire a lawyer based on an ad on TikTok. Uh, it's just it's out of place it's a it's a transact it's a it's a service that matters and you really care about character and quality of the lawyer and and their ability their ability to be engaging or even just their presence on a platform that's that's centered on sort of addiction and engagement just says very little about their quality. Whereas if it were a platform, if it were a network that you trusted, and the example I give is sort of churches, country clubs, some of these, they're networks where there's sort of a, a lot of trust built in there. And as networks, they're actually able to mediate much higher value transactions. So it's mm-hmm. the kind of place where a recommendation can lead to uh, a job to hiring a, a, a high value professional service, sometimes even to a multi-million dollar investment. And so ultimately it's a different sort of platform, but we've had, and Silicon Valley by and large has failed in that space. It's largely failed to facilitate high value transactions and build high trust networks. And I think it goes to the fact that it's a culture that doesn't really understand people and it doesn't understand it doesn't understand, and it doesn't. It doesn't have a very high view of people, by and large. Uh, you think of Sam Altman, and not, he certainly they believe most people will be replaced by AI, but he even thinks he might be replaced by AI. I mean, they 
it's a group of people with a pessimistic view of human nature. And so it's no surprise that they've they've optimized for sort of low value consumer applications. Uh, and even I would say a lot of enterprise software. I mean, you can think of enterprise software and you can build it in two ways. You can build it, uh, you can build it to kind of manage people. And I actually, I would use Uber as a very good example of this. Uber with the driver is kind of using the driver as the lowest it's it's a few engineers design an algorithm that turns around and micromanages millions of people. And they just do the sort of lowest level function that can't be done by a computer until ideally they can replace them with computers. Mm. Uh, that's, that's one view of software. Software manages the person. The other view is something like uh, Excel. Excel is a tool that does exactly what you want it to do. Uh, it's not trying to manage you. You're you're using it as a piece of leverage to do other things. So yeah. you can build you can build software with either of those visions. And if you have a higher view of the person, you're more likely to build. TikTok is sort of extreme in the the Uber version, right? TikTok kind of does everything for you, and you're there almost a pure consumer of it. Uh, but you can imagine things where you're much more of an agent, and you're using the software as a piece of leverage to to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And that's that software that's going to tend toward a higher, uh, it, it's going to allow much higher value transactions and interactions. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you're talking about, about Google, uh, like in imagining a, kind of a right spun Google, Google's uh, prominence is about its globalistic vision, right? It, it wants to connect everybody. And so it became the connection for everybody. How could a right what kind of vision could the right or somebody on the right have that is uh, that large that could facilitate right values on a global level? So I'm not I'm not sure how central the global is to, the, the the global connection is. I mean, if you think of most of the things you're going to search on Google most of the time, they they probably are are relatively local or at least within the U.S. I. Uh, Certainly, there's areas where global scope is going to matter more, but or anglophone scope or whatever. But uh, but for a lot of it, I mean, you think of Google Maps. That's that's inherently local, and yet that's a huge part of of sort of Google local Google News. I mean, yes, sometimes you care about global news, but a lot of times it's local. Uh, Google Shopping. So I think it 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 may or may not matter. What I would say is, uh, you could imagine. I think the bigger difference I would make with Google versus uh, of sort of global versus local, the different, the differentiating uh, core differentiating component of a right wing Google would be one that's focused on truth, truth and goodness. So let's say you mm -hmm. typed in kids books you could use Amazon, you could use Google, you type it in very good chance. You get a bunch of kids books that are going to try to trans your kid subtly or, or more overtly these days, there's no standard of goodness there. I, uh, but let's say you could go to one where you knew that there was, it's almost like the algorithm was catechized with a sense of the good hmm. and you go there and you type whatever you type in, it's actually going to give you results that are, are good for you. Uh, good for your kids. That is going to have an appeal that is, uh, increasingly desired. I think in a world where people, where, where there, where, where social norms break down and you can no longer sort of trust that the most relevant result, which is largely what Google is going to search for is actually good. And I would say true is another one. Uh, I would say high value on an information state standpoint is actually correlated. So Google's, uh, a central problem of Google is they don't even have the, they don't have the epistemological foundation to distinguish spam from non-spam. If you can't define what is good for people, then you have no ability to say that uh, some sort of information-rich uh, result is better, perhaps, than some sort of AI-generated listicle. Because yeah. uh, by what standard is one better than the other, uh, that is a question of value judgment, and they don't know how to think about those values judgments. So maybe in, in one way of thinking about things, them dropping their motto, don't be evil, wasn't just about them being evil. It's just them not being able to define evil or good. Exactly. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, six, sorry, that one comment just uh, interrupted my head so the, the good and the true so in 
so Trump comes along. Trump's an interesting character, right? Because like, what percentage of him is good, true, or beautiful, right? But he's still uh, disrupting, I guess, the political marketplace in favor of the conservatives. Would you say that? Like, he's kind of a problematic character because he can't necessarily be the the harbinger of the good, the beautiful, and the true. But he is allowing for the right to have a little bit more traction or to see opportunity where it saw that it was being shut out. Right. So I think, I, I think we've, I think conservatives have had a, a sort of a, a flawed framework for a long time. Our country's had a flawed framework where they focus on, hmm. they like to focus on the character of the person, which often leads to perceived character of the person, or even just, are they a telegenic person who appears to look good? I, hmm. uh, instead of what is the, is the agenda that they're fighting for good? Is there a common good is there a, are they fighting for something are they pushing for something that's actually good for the country and good for the people uh, you can have someone who seems like a very good person who is advancing something that's extremely destructive for the country uh, you saw a lot of that with the iraq war where i think a lot of people who would have been seen as very high character people fought mm-hmm. for something they pushed a war that was disastrous it was disastrous to iraq and it was disastrous for america and i uh, and yet, by every sort of traditional character standard, they were they were high character people. Well, maybe our standards of character are flawed if we're mm-hmm. if we're only focused on the personal and not the uh, not the outcome of their uh, th- their uh, policies. I mean, I would also say, in a time of serious crisis, you uh, it, it's someone can have a significant positive impact shaking up the system and that person the person willing to do that going back to distressed investing the sort of people who get involved in times like that are usually not people who are they're often sort of from outside of the club right they're not people who have all the manners they're not part of the fraternity they're often someone who's willing to go and make some hard decisions that need to be made even if it means uh, offending a lot of people and being rude and it's kind of like if the if the system is inherently uh in a headed in a, a problematic direction uh you need someone disagreeable. You need someone willing to uh, yeah. to do things that are going to get them labeled poorly. So that's 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 going to be seen as a lot of people will say that is bad character, but a lot of that is just uh, willing to do things that are jarring and that are seen as impolite. I think manners and character are not synonymous. Uh, finally, I think it's uh, it's people are complicated. I mean. Samson rescued Israel and the guy was not necessarily a good guy. He was the best guy to step up and save Israel. So uh, Hmm. maybe uh, maybe uh, in times of uh, in times where you need a savior, you uh, you take the savior who steps up, not the uh, not the person who theoretically uh, could could be perfect. Yeah. So taking um, the analogy from earlier, like if, if the political framework had been disrupted by Trump, then in another way of thinking things, all these opportunities arise. Where where do you think things are now? Or could you walk us through like your point of view on the political shift or realignment and what, what opportunities are there to institute, let's say, values that um, are more right aligned? So it's a tough question. And I certainly, when it comes to conventional politics, when it comes to the electoral politics, I will not claim any expertise there. I I don't think that's a domain where I have huge edges, a domain where we face enormous challenges. Uh, I think we should be prepared for a range of possibilities. I mean, I guess one point I made is uh, the volatility has been increasing, if you think of this from a financial perspective. So when the Dems arrest Trump, that's that is a major departure from historical norms. You could think of that as sort of a, an upping of the 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 pace of departure from hmm. previous norms and even though a lot of those seem to be going in one direction uh if you think of markets if you have bigger and bigger moves in one direction that's still increasing volatility which still increases the sort of range of expected outcomes in both directions uh you can have either sort of it's kind of like if, if stocks are are moving more and more aggressively up you can easily imagine a scenario where they double very rapidly. You can also imagine a scenario where they have fairly rapidly. And so I think we're in a situation a little bit like that, where the range of outcomes is is going up widely and a stable regime does not intentionally up the volatility like that. That's a, that is a regime that is, that, that is 
itself in a lot of danger. You can imagine it's easy to imagine a scenario where Trump wins next year. Uh, It's easy to imagine a scenario where the Dems respond with extreme violence and and uh, just a a level of hysteria that would put uh, what we saw in 2017 to shame. So that's really hard to imagine. But I guess like anything's uh, possible. Yeah, that's I guess the point is. I don't know what exactly it looks like. It's hard for me to imagine that, but it's sort of easy for me to envision that that is within a range of possibilities that we have to be prepared for. Mm. Uh, Obviously, the opposite direction is they uh, they crush him and they crush Republicans and they start sending us to gulags. And that's also in the range of possibilities. So I think there's a pretty broad range that we need to be prepared for. And you look at sort of world history and you see that the temperature in politics can go up a lot from where it is here, Uh, not just world history, but you look around the world. Uh, So I would say that being ready for that is significant. Now, I think very clearly we are in a post-constitutional regime without question. We're in a world where uh, I mean, just what the Dems are doing to Trump right now is a perfect example. They are operating well outside of how they how they go after political prisoners aggressively, how they lawlessly do any number of things, uh, whether effectively execute a coup against Trump. Uh, So we're in a post-constitutional regime and that that also just means there's less less serious guardrails obviously there sort of continues to be certain aspects of law where where a constitution of sorts remains operative but it's not uh it's not a system where taking control of congress can allow us to sort of change the direction of government in ways that would in any way resemble how you might imagine the system works if you read the constitution of the federalist papers mm-hmm. uh and then i think another one is I think the era of the neutral public square is is dead. And that, I think, goes actually with it was sort of a fantasy of the 20th century that you could have a neutral public square. Uh, not something that would have been envisioned in much of much of human history. And I think the digital actually hammers home the impossibility of that. So going to my point about Google, Google in many ways is one of the central sort of institutions. Insta- companies like that are some of the central institutions uh, of our society, mediating our society. And neutrality is impossible. So once you realize neutrality is impossible in the digital age, uh, you you end up in a battle for what values will be the sort of normalized values in society rather than trying to strip it back to something neutral. And once you realize it's not possible in important domains like like search, you're also going to realize it's it's not really possible. And it, it just doesn't become a priority in uh hmm in many of the other domains of government as well. And I think it was always a little bit of a fantasy you could maintain that. But I think once people realize that, certainly the left realized that before the right did. The left was pushing AI ethics and all this stuff, uh, mm. algorithmic justice, whatever they call it. Uh, very early in the 20, uh, sort of really post-Trump, as they realized that those algorithms helped, helped elect Trump. Yeah. And the right has continued to sort of, in many cases, I think naively fight for neutrality. They say we want we want this to be neutral. Uh, I mean, you hear people sometimes call for something like we want Google to be treated like a common carrier. Well, it can't be a common carrier if if it's values laden. Then it's it, again, it's mm. it's not it's not just like a telephone company that connects you to whoever you dial. And uh, so, I think the right is realizing that the new right, in many ways, is built on the sense that there must be a common good. We're not just gonna argue for sort of procedural norms like the constant like like uh federalism the constitution or whatever and so uh once mm. you realize that both sides both sides are fighting for for sharply conflicting visions of the good that's that's a different sort of politics and they're doing so largely outside of or to, to a meaningful extent outside of constitutional norms and i think that trend will continue okay your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, so how does how does the right win then? Is it still a dem- democratic uh, project for convincing people, um, building uh, coalitions and stuff, reaching outside of the party, uh, ameliorating the disaffected leftists, uh, you know, bringing in the uh, classical liberals into the fold? Or is it you know doing that intentionally by some sort of evangelical outreach? Or do you think that the values itself will attract, uh, you know, more and more um, gravitas in the culture. So I think it's an open question. I I think that yeah. it it may be elements of both. I, we're not a we're not a democracy. We're not a we're not a situation where you can persuade people and expect that to result in significant change. I mean, you we win the presidency and they're they. I mean, the, the FBI invents invents scandals to try to destroy take out a an elected president. So obviously, electing your president is not going to. Uh, is not going to get you the position to have change. Uh, there's millions of federal employees who are protected by civil service protections that that are vastly slanted in one direction, and they are they're going to frustrate it, frustrate the efforts of the right. So, uh, yes, I think that electoral, I mean, when electoral wins will be a component of this. That's that's certainly something that we need to we need to keep fighting on that front, but. That's not going to be enough for victory. Uh, I do think a lot of digital and structural could change things. I think that I, I think we'll see a general breakdown of societal trust broadly, and this is some of what we're working on. Where if you see a breakdown of societal trust, then you could see a sort of collapse of trust in institutions to the point that people look for new. This is a little bit like the going back to the distress concept. Uh, I, I think of high trust aligned communities as reservoirs of trust that have largely been crowded out by institutions and, and broad digital platforms in terms of commerce and in terms of uh, influence in the world. Uh, but they remain, and churches are a great example. Uh, you could imagine a world where uh, as broad societal and institutional trust drops, there's suddenly a lot of demand for uh, either either you sort of adjust to living in a very low trust society or you look for alternative uh, mediators and pillars. And maybe these aligned high trust communities could become that. And I think if you combine that with the right digital technology, if you have if you have platforms that help sort of facilitate commerce inside and among uh, people in these aligned communities and even outside of through these communities to to the broader community, then you could imagine a scenario where people suddenly start to look for, as an example, hiring. Uh, if you're hiring someone, you could either sort of trust the university degree, and you don't. You it's almost a formula. You you look at the U.S. News and World Report rank of the university. You look at their GPA. You sort of benchmark where they fall, and that's that's the signal. That's the signal of trust that matters to you. An alternative is you go to a, a community you're a part of, let's say you're part of a church, you ask for a recommendation of someone within the church. Those are two competing ways of of, mm. of vetting someone and establishing sort of establishing the threshold needed to take a risky decision, take a risky bet on the person. And as the former uh as the former degrades in quality as as university degrees, for instance, become less trusted, uh people may seek more and more through through the ladder especially if you then build technologies that make the ladder that make those those community driven networks more convenient uh more efficient uh suddenly you now have a, a viable alternative and, and as you have a viable alternative you also see people invest more of their energy i mean people invest tre- tremendous energy effectively in a sort of rat race starting in childhood to get into this university system, huge amounts yeah. of wasted effort, which gives the universities huge power. And I would say they're in many ways the sort of pinnacle of of opposition to us, uh, pinnacle of power of the left. If people redirect some of that energy to, let's say, to gaining credibility within their own communities, gaining uh, taking jobs in communities that they know are going to lead to good recommendations, that's a, that's okay. a sort of reordering of society that has different set of status hierarchies uh 
that people are chasing. And that that I think could meaningfully shift the balance of power. And it's kind of a collapse of one combined with a yeah. growth of the other. Well, I mean, if there was somebody in your position, because you ended up going to a prestigious law school, right? But because you saw that as a viable way yeah. to, to make your mark in the yes. world or put yourself ahead of everybody else, but you'd be giving up a lot to just like get a humble job in, in a local or just move around working your way up in letter. How, how would you pitch that to somebody in your position? Uh, well, you said, first of all, it, I think you, you say it's a humble job in a local thing, but I think that that, that need not be, it was a very sort of clear calculation. What types of jobs could I get coming out of college? What types of jobs could I get with this degree? I think the deal coming out of Harvard has gotten worse in the last 15 years. So for one thing, that's a less attractive option. It's probably more debt. It's probably certainly the, okay. the career at a law firm is less attractive in many ways. Uh, at the same time, uh, a, a local a local opportunity need not be if you have, let's say, churches where there's rich sort of s sources of recommendation. Let's say I have the opportunity to take a job as the assistant to the CEO of a local company. Uh, I mean, it might be a sort of humble job in certain ways. Uh, maybe it doesn't pay much, but uh, that's you learn a lot. I, I would learn a lot. Uh, I would I would have someone where if I impress him, I know that his recommendation can get me a much less humble job. So uh, there's there's no need that th there's no sort of inherent reason that the opportunities through local networks need to be less attractive than the opportunities through centralized ones. In many ways, like I subjected myself and to law school is sort of interesting. I, you, you sort of score well on one test and you can get into law school. And so it's not really a very it's less I think it's less I. Uh, of a rat race than than many. I mean, HBS trying to go to HBS would have been more of a rat race. Actually, uh, I would have had to sort of subject myself to three years at certain types of companies, and then yeah. that itself seems like a pretty intolerable. I mean, that's a. I think the culture at HBS, HBS being worse. Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School. Yeah, I think the culture there is actually worse and far woker than the the culture was at law school. May uh, was I think business. Business students are some of the most conformist people on the planet huh. uh, and really not. In, there's sort of a the level of thinking that you often see there is uh, they think they're good at strategy and they really are sort of good at repeating conventional wisdom. So that would be a would be an unpleasant, unpleasant uh, way to spend time in, in key ways. But uh, I guess the point is. It's a trade off. And I think that as the opportunities become more attractive through certain communities, through local communities, uh, it better and better competes with the alternatives available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I can think... rapidly change. I mean, right now it could be that your best opportunity, my best opportunity could come through Twitter uh, or my kid's best opportunity could come through something like Twitter. And there it's not, it's not actually a local community, but it's sort of an aligned community that forms independent of, yeah. uh, independent of uh, the sort of establishment credential system. Yeah. You're making me think, um, going kind of, when we're almost at time, uh, going back to uh, the no enemies to the right, which is a negative statement, and we can define it or not, but what you're kind of hinting at is that mentorships or, you know, pulling people up through the community to establish more cred in your own community, rather than outsourcing, um, you know, outsourcing things to these institutions outsourcing credentialism to to the mm -hmm. um to the institutions rather but bringing it in-house is a way for the you know the alternative community or the the non-left aligned communities to grow stronger and and to become more independent of the institutions right and then also to yep. rob the institutions of talent and of credibility right exactly and i think it's i guess it, one reason for hope is i think that model is inherently it's, it's inherently more resilient and even anti-fragile. If you if you're investing in strong local communities in a world where we see sort of greater and greater global disruptions, you're building something that's less likely to be destroyed. Whereas if you mm -hmm. go, let's say you have sort of a very abstracted set of skills and you have a network that's sort of very abstract at the, the global level and you've gone away from your family and you're in New York or whatever and you're doing something... Uh, there's a lot of in a world of greater disruption, there's a lot of ways that uh, the deal can change pretty sharply against you. And uh, you are uh, 
you don't have a lot of people who necessarily have your back. You don't necessarily yeah. have a ton of you, you. You're sort of on your own. I, and I think we are facing a world where you can expect digital disruption to continue to produce greater and greater disruptions uh, mm -hmm. that ripple across society and uh, sort of a trend toward deglobalization. So, I. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a real reason to invest in something that's going to be more uh, anti-fragile. And I use anti-fragile as opposed to just resilient because uh, the resilience, yes, you have a local community that you are well invested in and that, that, that protects your downside, that makes you more resilient. But I actually think that if you're part of a core, tight, high trust community and you've built a sort of, you've built a career, let's say you've built a brokering career, career where you're mediating as part of your job, uh, it's actually anti-fragile because as the if you face broader drops in societal trust, what you have in that community will become scarcer. And mm. as a result, you may have far more people who may have previously, there may be a large number of people who they were sort of on the threshold. It was slightly more attractive for them to go through the sort of broad, anonymized institutions. Uh, but as those collapse, now they're going to want to go through what you have to offer. They're going to trust you more than they trust those institutions. So you actually are in a position to potentially capitalize on that and sort of rapidly rise as the as one of the new sort of elite hubs that that is mediating a lot of that. So, yeah. uh, yes. So there's a very strong upside to investing in those those high trust communities. So from your own personal point of view, what are the most interesting developments that are the opportunities that, that you see um, arising in the political sphere and in, in a realignment um, kind of or even just discursively like like the topics or the people who are starting to you know, give a, a hopeful vibe or like a, a opportunity or poten high potential in, in developing things that, that align with your values? Well, I think one we see is we just see a lot of we, we've seen a rapid growth of high qual high caliber founders coming to us. And we're a venture firm. Fundamentally New Founding is a venture firm. We invest we invest in companies with a distinct right wing thesis. Uh, hmm. so it's 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 they're selling to people on the right. Their their product is has sort of a clear there's a clear uh, way that it's solving strategic needs of the right or uh, or maybe it's people on the right are early adopters of a disruptive technology. Uh, but we're seeing a growth in really high caliber founders. And that's something that tells you that people are seeing they're, mm -hmm. they're willing to cast their lot in this movement in important ways. And that's, uh, what that's do you mean by high quality? The sort of people you'd bet on, they're doing a project that's very thoughtful. They're doing something that they're the sort of people you would back. I mean, maybe to some extent it's just more, they're willing to invest their effort in something that is, uh, it, that is, that is, serving people in this space and that is uh, they're willing to signal that publicly so uh that's that's a big it, that's that i mean ultimately as a venture investor you're betting on people so the caliber of the people yeah. their their capability uh is one of the most important things that determines whether whether you're going to back them the idea is worth something but they're going to iterate on the idea they'll figure it out but mm -hmm. are they someone who really knows that do they understand are they able to really figure out what the problem is and what 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 the right solution is uh with the right iteration so that's yeah. that's a huge one i think another one is this uh this willingness to have adult level conversations about uh ideas that are outside of the traditional opportunity and this goes to the no enemies to the right concept it's i mean we can have a conversation about that uh that's a very practical sort of real politic conversation uh and I think enough people observe principles like that, that, that very serious people can have conversations about things that would be seen as sort of beyond the pale to uh, Republicans 10 years ago. And that goes to maybe the post-constitutional state. Mm. Uh, the right was long handicapped by its inability to even entertain ideas that fell outside of its sort of ideals that it was supposedly that it was captivated to, which really made it a slave of the left in many ways. Uh, mm. And that that was a handicap and that's no longer true so that that opens the range of possibilities I and mean, that doesn't mean anything in particular it's not clear what in particular is going to win there but it opens the range of possibilities uh, and it makes a much more vibrant place for for discussion and debate and for i think the right sort of political i think there's huge opportunity for the right political entrepreneur to rise very quickly sort of like trump was a i view trump as a political entrepreneur he, he took a position that was outside of the the mainstream for his party and leveraged some personal virtues uh use that virtue in the machiavellian sense there 
uh, but leveraged leveraged sort of a, a capability in in important ways to rapidly rise to reshape the political landscape. And he's he's uh, not going to be the last. I think there's mm-hmm. I think we're in a space where there's incredible opportunity for uh, someone with the right uh, right vision and the right uh, talents to uh, to do something uh, analogous to that. Is there uh, either a person or or work or book that uh, over over the years like has really influenced you that you keep returning to or that keeps popping up in in you in terms of guidance or orientation? So there's a few, and uh, one that really one that I like that really shapes how I think about the nature of trust, and uh, and has really influenced how I think about a lot of what I work on in business, particularly is Knowledge and Power by George Gilder, and he. He really talks about the it's sort of a reframing of economics uh, in a way that recognizes human agency and human creative creation as central to uh, central to it, the creation of information. And I think that applies likewise to uh, to uh, what a uh, what a right, right, what a non-technocratic bureaucratic uh form of approach to business is going to look like it's a business approach to business where we really value human judgment Mm. whereas so much of business is about squeezing out human judgment in favor of bureaucratic or analytical processes uh so that one is 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 interesting and then i think another one and it really emphasizes the concept of skin in the game as central to information it's kind of like Mm. human human judgment if you think about human judgment plays a central role in that you could think of one of the highest information decisions is an investment bet you're betting on something uh that that if, if it's just an opinion that you write on an internet forum as an anon it's irrelevant it, it, there's no information value in some anonymous vision in some anonymous uh, hmm. uh person's opinion about about a stock uh whereas uh that same opinion if it's by someone who's willing to stake tens of millions of dollars behind it uh, there's enormous skin in the game, and that that can be something that can really drive major change. So I think that yeah. uh, skin in the game, th- and, and you would look at that as another investor. You'd say, okay, that person believes in this. I'm now going to take that seriously too. It's now a bet that matters. And I think skin in the game determines to a great extent whether you can trust something that goes. Obviously, if you can sort of follow the analysis very clearly, and if it's all sort of provable on a spreadsheet, you don't necessarily need that. Actually, you can just look at the analysis. It makes sense. You could do it, but that that model of, of economics investing converges toward things like buying apartment buildings. I mean, apartment building will always pencil out better than anything else in some sense, because there's not really a lot of sort of judgment or risk, whereas a venture bet on a person by its very nature includes some leaps that are really kind of hard mm. to justify by numbers on a spreadsheet. And so uh, skin in the game, uh, knowing the person's track record, knowing what they've knowing their knowing that they're staking some of their own reputation and it's a substantial reputation is central to uh, central to evaluating the, the the significance and essentially the information value of such such bets. So that's that's one. And related to that is Anti-Fragile by uh, Talib and a lot of mm-hmm. Talib's thinking generally uh, relates to a lot of, of, of concepts around skin in the game, really as a sort of substitute for the analytical expert framework for uh for getting to truth which dominates our society today and related to that is is Talib's idea of how uh minority of people can have a, an, in, an intolerant minority can have significant impact and can have a lot of change and i think that influences a lot i think in a world where a lot of people are effectively npcs they're you know they're they're going to watch what the tiktok algorithm shows them i yeah. uh, you don't need to it's not about persuading a majority of people first and foremost it's first and foremost about uh a minority doing something that drives change in a uh drive creates an alternative vision or drives change in a meaningful direction and if anything you create the next TikTok, let's say uh that that in turn can then influence tens of millions of people potentially but it's not the it's not the influencing of the people that's ultimately the the significant challenge it's it's building something great building something successful yeah 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 so any projects coming up uh, or public speaking gigs or or any uh ways for people to follow you or contact you or just follow what you're what you're doing or where you're headed 
So Twitter, uh, active on Twitter, Nate A. Fisher on Twitter, and I, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, intentionally there because going to the point about, uh, I, well, from a media perspective, our, our being public, uh, in a world where many people aren't public with these viewpoints in business, our being public about them allows a lot of people to come to us, and then we can then broker a lot of transactions that couldn't otherwise happen, where politics matters deeply. Uh, we have a fund. Uh, you can go to our website, newfounding.com. We we have a, a an angelist rolling fund that we are actively uh, investing right now. We're looking for startups that fit our thesis. Really early stage at this point. It's mostly pre-seed and seed. Uh, and we'll lead or we'll participate in deals again that fit that model. Uh, we're also uh, we're also raising, so uh, you can go find information about the fund there. And I think there's a uh, an exciting uh, macro thesis behind this type of investing. And so we're we're seeing, as I said, compounding deal flow from high quality founders. And uh, so it's a good way to to get involved. Uh, it's a good way to get economically involved in it. And then. And then really, we just want to hear from people who are doing interesting things uh, in terms of I'm, I'm, I'm regularly talking to people on podcasts. Uh, the new founding podcast is, uh, is, is by two guys on my team, Santiago Plago and Josh Clemens, and they've had a really interesting series of guests. So uh, see what's happening in this broad space. So hmm. different kind of depending on where you're coming from and what you're doing, there's, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And then talent placement. I mean, a big one is we have become a hub for people as well as opportunities. And so we, you can go there and we have a network of people looking for opportunities. Uh, our motto is build the America you want to live in. And you can do that mm. by starting a company. You can do that by sort of by investing in companies that are building what you want to live in. You can also jump into the network and sign up and create a profile and uh, see opportunities from other companies that are, are doing something that you get excited to get up and, and do every morning. Excellent. Excellent. Nate, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really hopeful to see people who are engaging in a proactive way. Uh, it can be really easy to just be a critic or a culture critic or a curmudgeon, uh, online, especially in, in, uh, political spaces and political debates, but you're, you're part of, uh, people who are putting, you know, their money where their mouth is quite literally. So it's great to, you know, to give air to that because there's actually activity going on to, you know, to follow through on this potential rather than just kind of decry the downfall of the West, right? It's, uh, it's exciting. It's, it's why I'm doing what I'm doing is I, uh, I think there's real potential to, to build something that changes the direction. Are you uh, running for office or are you keeping that under wraps? Is that a no. I, I, I am in business because I believe that business is uh, certainly where my talents are best suited. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's also where I believe there's actually the most, the most potential for impact at this point. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.